0: Guys, grab your Bibles um, and go back with me to Esther chapter 6. And while you're doing that, I need to make one quick announcement. And that announcement has to do with the uh, result of the nomination process that just concluded Wednesday night, the nomination for the Office of Elder. Um, the nominations have produced six candidates, and this, those six candidates are listed alphabetically for you. Ross Braithwaite, Ed Kato, Eric Krigler, Dave Hogue, Jeff Nevels, and Rick San Roman. Those are the six men that you see are qualified for the office of elder. On December the 5th, a Wednesday night, we will have a congregational meeting here at Grace DeVan, and from that list of six, you will select four. So I, I hope that you'll plan to be a part of us, If you uh, a, a part of that election process on that night. If not, you uh, can never complain again because you had nothing to do with the... Uh, with the selection of the officers. So, come be with us on the 5th as you choose the leaders of this church. Now, before I I read to you this portion from Exodus 6 and 7, I want to kind of prime the pump. I want to get you, I want to bring you along as to let you know where we are in this whole story. You'll recall that um, uh, Esther's plan has begun to unfold. Her plan consists of two banquets. The first banquet has already taken place. At the end of that, ba- or the, in, the, in the midst of that banquet, uh, Xerxes says to her, what do you want? I'll give you anything you want up to half the kingdom. She said, what I really want is you to come to the banquet tomorrow. He says, fine. Haman leaves, goes home. He is swelling with pride. He sees Mordecai, and Mordecai won't bow to him again. And so he's really upset about that. But otherwise, he's, he's really on cloud nine. Uh, his wife uh, encourages him to build uh, a, a gallows 75 feet high so that he can hang Mordecai on that gallows, which he does. That night, uh, as you recall, that fateful night, the king, Xerxes, cannot sleep. And so he calls for his assistants to bring in the book of Memor- memorable deeds to be read to him. And so while they're reading, they read of an event that occurred five years in the past. It was when Mordecai uncovered a plot to assassinate the king. The king hears that and says, what did we ever do for that guy? What did we ever do to to say thanks for that, that great intervention? And his assistant said, well, oh king, we didn't do a blasted thing. The king is mortified and says, oh my goodness, then we've got to correct that. And he says, who's out in the courtyard? And about that time, Haman walks in and that's where we are. And that's where we resume our reading at verse 4 of, Ex- uh, of Esther chapter 6. And the king said, "Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanging on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself. Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on his head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered and Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him, then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with, the king, with, with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther and on the second day as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther, then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and for uh, granted me for my wish and my people for my request for we have been sold I and my people to be destroyed to be killed to be annihilated if we had been sold merely as slaves men and women I would have been silent for our afflictions is is not to be compared with the loss of the king then king azure said to queen esther who is he and where is he who has dared to do this and esther said A foe and an enemy. This wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And The king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, uh, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, then the wrath of the king abated. <laughs> the grass withers, and the flower fades. the word of our God it endures forever. You know guys, last week we 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 began to see Haman's fortunes begin or at least. the the hint that they were beginning to be reversed. But this week, what we get to see is the specifics of how a man is destroyed who is in opposition to God and his people. You know, folks, if nothing else, this is a brilliant, intriguing story. Shakespeare never wrote anything this this brilliant. But of course, Shakespeare was human. And the author of this story is not human. The author of this story is divine. Folks, I, I hope you saw it as I read it. But the scene is filled with irony. Haman, an Amalekite, falls before a Jew... And a Jewish woman at that, a woman that he had condemned to die, he now appeals to that same woman for his own life. On the couch of a Jewish queen, he falls all the way from this exalted position to this ignominious death as a traitor. By the way, you, you need to know this. There was a harem protocol. A harem, there were harem rules. And one of those rules were was that no one was to be within seven steps of any member of the king's harem and there he lays on her couch haman and his his evil plot is all overturned because of an unforeseen unpredicted unexpected night of the king's insomnia After which, for Haman, the walls come a-tumbling down. Guys, let's let's go back to that insomnia place before we get too far ahead of ourselves and miss some of this story. Guys, um, the role of coincidence is very prominent in the book of Esther. Um, somebody, and I forget who it was, defined a coincidence as a miracle in which God prefers to remain anonymous. Well, there's a string of coincidences in this book. I've, I've already pointed them out to you, but for instance, by coincidence, Mordecai overhears of an assassination plot of the king. By coincidence, the king's timely insomnia results in in Mordecai's exaltation on the same day that Haman thought he was going to be hanged. And by the way, when was the last time a night of insomnia made the front page of the news? There is another coincidence in chapter 6, verse 4, where when the king says, "Um, Who's in the courtyard?" And they say, Haman has just walked through the door. So, when the king asks Haman, what should be done for somebody that, that, that the king wants to exalt? Haman is thinking, ha, 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 I mean, who could, who could be, I mean, who, who more would he want to exalt than me? And, and what should I ask for? I mean, I can't ask for a promotion. I'm already number two. So he asks, and he's already got all of the luxury and all of the wealth that the Persian empire can afford him. So he asks for that, which will allow him to swell in pride. What irony, while Haman plots Mordecai's death and is on his way to tell the king of his plans to hang him. While Mordecai is about to say that, the king is planning to give him a parade, a a gold watch. The king is mortified that nothing has been done for this man who did this thing five years ago in the past. It's just a... Another coincidence that Xerxes was being read to and he was being read to from transcripts that were five years old which just happened to outline something that Mordecai had done. And so Xerxes decides to reward Mordecai right now. On this day, right before the second banquet, Haman not only ends up not killing Mordecai, he ends up escorting him through the city streets. Verse 11. You know, you and I may call all of this irony. Theologians call it something else. They call it providence. That God is governing his universe down to the smallest detail. But we have not yet arrived. At the climax of the story. That occurs at the second banquet in chapter 7. When the heroine and the villain finally come face to face. Chapter 7, we read about the second banquet. And and Xerxes repeats his generous offer to Esther. uh, Saying, you can have whatever you want up to half of the kingdom. That's the third time he said that. Apparently, Esther has got him eating out of the palm of her beautiful little hand. But her request is is rather unusual and is certainly unexpected. And with it, the hammer falls on Haman. She has to be careful because the one who really looks like a dope here is the king. I mean, he got tricked. Who dares injure my wife? And her people. Him. And Xerxes is undone. His fury drives him out of the banquet room and into the garden because he's really in a quandary. And the quandary is can I punish Haman for a plot that I myself signed off on? I mean, Aren't I going to look pretty bad? Yep, you are. Except his dilemma is about to be solved by Haman. By Haman's further foolishness. You see, for his part, Haman is trapped. If I run, it's an admission of guilt but but I'm not supposed to be in a room with a member of the harem, especially the queen. But ladies and gentlemen, falling on the couch is absolutely unthinkable. But that's what he does. And at the precise moment of his falling on the couch, who comes in from the garden Oops. It's just a one, another one of those coincidences. And then Haman is hanged. You know, ladies and gentlemen, that's pretty much the story. There's some loose ends that we got to tie up, uh, and we'll do so in two subsequent sermons on, on the book of Esther. But the story is, is pretty much over. Uh, at least its climax has been reached. But it's at this point of the story where a lot of criticism is leveled at the, at the book of Esther. Um, it has to do, the criticism, has to do with these issues. Um, who gets life and who doesn't? And why? I mean, um, Haman doesn't get life. And, and the suddenness of his demise is somewhat unnerving. One day he's on the top of the world, and the next he is executed in disgrace. In one night, the tables are turned, and and he never saw it coming. Whoa, Jimmy, wait a minute. I mean, isn't all this a bit harsh? I mean, where is mercy in all of this? And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the, is, is the nature of the criticism about this book. It, it occurs two places, here in chapter 7 and later in chapter 9. And the, um, and the, the, the criticism has to do with mercy. Where is Mercy. You know, it's a pretty good question, and and, and you're certainly not the first one to ask it if you're asking it. Um, This book is, um, is pretty much dismissed in many circles, in some circles, because of what is deemed an absence of mercy. So really, that's my two points for this morning. We'll do this quickly, but... I want to show you, or I want to address the whole issue of who gets life and who doesn't and why. And is this some kind of miscarriage of mercy in what you're seeing unfold before you? Consider these things, guys. I got two or three things I want you to consider. First of all, this man, Haman, is driven by uncontrollable pride, all brought on because one man would not bow to him. If there were ever an an illustration of pride going before the fall, it is Haman. Haman trips over his own pride, and I've got a pretty good hunch as to who shoved him. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, pride, wherever it exists, has a way of deceiving you. It deceives you in numerous ways, but one of the ways that it deceives you is that it deceives you into believing that I'm simply too clever to be caught. You know, guys, we have a local mayor. Actually, I guess you'd have to say he was a regional mayor. But he's a man who is an elected official in, in one of the cities around here and and he saw fit to take city monies and go spend them on his homosexual pursuits in Las Vegas, I think it was. I think it was in Las Vegas where he took the money and spent it on. And when I read those articles, I, I wondered, did you not think you would ever be caught? Brian has a way of doing that, ladies and gentlemen. It also has a way of making you think that you can live above the law, that my actions are justified. Ladies and gentlemen, Haman got exactly what God promised is coming. To all those who are in a similar mindset. The punishment, I would suggest, fits the crime. But there's a couple other things I want you to think about. Guys, do you remember I told you the story? Um, It's it's in 1 Samuel 15. It, It was in this series on Esther. It was when Israel chose her first king, Saul. Remember that? And and Saul's first assignment is to go exterminate the Amalekites. Remember that? And instead of obedience to the instructions that he got from God, he spares some of the Amalekites. And so Samuel, the prophet, shows up on the scene and and Saul says, Oh, blessed of the Lord, I have carried out the will of God. And, and, And Samuel says, you have? then what is this bleeding of sheep I have in my ears? If you'd have done what God said, I wouldn't be hearing this. And Samuel is outraged at at, at Saul's so-called mercy. He says to Saul, it's better to obey Saul. My, My point is simply this, guys. There is afoot, a very mistaken notion as to what mercy is in the first place. Gang, not only is Esther or the book of Esther criticized for an absence of mercy, so is Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Particularly over one of his parables. It's a parable that's found in Luke 16. It's the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. You know that parable? Uh, It's a parable about two men. One whose name is Lazarus and the other is a rich man. And the rich man fares sumptuously. The poor man, or Lazarus, is so sick, so homeless, so ill that he's lying on the front door, his front porch steps, and the dogs are licking his wounds. Um... You have one man who is very beautiful on the, on the outside, but very ugly on the inside. And then you have another man who's very ugly on the outside. But as the parable will reveal, he's very beautiful on the inside. And death is the thing that reveals the true nature of the situation. You know, ladies and gentlemen, our world is full of that. Full of, you've got a lot of people who are very beautiful on the outside, but very ugly on the inside. And then you've got some people who are very ugly on the outside, but very beautiful on the inside. And it is the commitment of the Lord God Himself to correct that. He is going to take Everything that is upside down. And he's going to make it right side up. And on one occasion, in this instance with Haman, and elsewhere in other stories in the scriptures, God steps forward and takes everything that is upside down and he turns it so that it's right side up. Tell me, you got a problem with that? Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what we long for? Guys, there is a very mushy gospel that's alive and well in our culture. It's a, it's, a, it's a gospel that has tried to rewrite stories like this one so that no one gets destroyed. They try to rewrite this one. They try to rewrite all kinds of New Testament uh, stories like the one I mentioned so that no one gets destroyed and love wins. Ladies and gentlemen, may I be the first to inform you that is not the biblical storyline, and that is not biblical mercy. Guys, one other little factor was Haman's death justified? I want to read you just three quick verses out of Exodus 17. You don't need to turn. This is the Lord speaking to Moses. Listen to this. God is speaking. He says, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek. Haman was an Amalekite from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it. The Lord is my banner saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Ladies and gentlemen, Haman's death is not only justified, had not God destroyed him. Then God would have been untrue to his covenant. He would have been untrue to his promises. What you're getting in the book of Esther is simply one instance of the destruction of all that wars against God. Even his wife seems to understand it in in verse 13. Gang, this story is a picture of the destiny of human evil. The the divine justice requires the destruction of evil. Mercy on Haman would have been inconsistent with God's covenant, with God's promises, with God's word. And let me just add this. Haman proceeds in conjunction With the choices of his own human will. He has no one to blame but himself. And May I say to you ladies and gentlemen. Every person who is in hell at this moment. Has chosen to go there. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I wouldn't say this is is an example of the absence of mercy. Because for me, ladies and gentlemen, the marvelous thing is not that that Haman does not get mercy. The amazing thing to me is that any of us do. Now, one other thing and I'm done. Haman doesn't get life, but Esther does. Why? Why does Esther get life? Because she's a good person. Ladies and gentlemen, we know better than that. She's a liar. She lied about her true identity. She committed adultery. She married a pagan king, which all three are violations of biblical standards. And Esther knows that if she gets what the law requires, a law signed by the king, if she gets what the law requires, she will perish. So what does she do? She casts herself on the mercy of the king and begs his favor. In wonder of wonders, she gets it. She gets... The king's favor. But hear me. Based on who she is. And what she's done. She deserves to perish. Folks. All of that is true. Of us. Based on who we are and what we've done, we all deserve to perish. My hope is that God is willing to grant mercy to the undeserving, and in Jesus Christ, He does. You know, in this story, Esther identified herself with God and His people. And she knows that if they perish, she perishes. But if they live, she lives. Gang, when any of us identify ourselves not with a people, but with a person, person of Jesus Christ. The King grants favor. The King grants forgiveness. The King grants life. Ladies and gentlemen, any of us who know our sin, glory in that that picture. We glory in it because we understand that unless this God chooses to have mercy on me, I will perish. So all who are Which is the message of this scene of the story. All who are outside of Christ perish. All who belong to Christ live. Who are you? Our Father, I do pray that you'll remind us from this story and from every place in this book that what you, what you delight in is not some kind of supposed good works on our part. What you delight in is a consciousness of sin and a recognition of a need for the Savior that you provided. That the only hope that we have is not that we've earned anything because what we've earned is destruction. And I pray, Father, that you will open our eyes to see our sin and to see the great provision that you have made for our sin in Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, Father, expand the kingdom by drawing people to Jesus Christ even now. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.